elementary kids, you guys can go ahead and head out. Can we calm the spotlights down a little bit? Thank you. I don't like the way it radiates off my bald head, so. So uh, coming off of our uh, Slow to Anger series, um, it's been interesting to just hear some takeaways. Uh, I've, we kind of rehashed it a little bit with uh, our staff this week and uh, my small group on Wednesday. I know some of uh, your small groups may have been going through this sermon series and just kind of talking about what, what are you taking away from this time? And one of the things that's kind of risen to the surface as a takeaway is people have just said, um, people in the group kind of just shared that they're much more aware of their sin now <laughs> uh, in, in some way. And, um, and our need for Jesus to transform our character. And that's a really good place to be because that um, shows humility and keeps the focus on our need to change while avoiding kind of the misguided thinking that everybody else is a problem. So that's, that's a good place to be for us. So as much as it hurts sometimes to see our shortcomings, I hope we can be comforted by the knowledge that God um, is incredibly, for one, incredibly aware of what all of our weaknesses are already. He's not surprised by anything that you might have had as a takeaway from that series, okay? Um, but he's also just so patient and kind as he addresses the sin in our hearts. But also he has this fierce resolve to mold our character into the image of his son for his glory. So those are, those are good things. And we started our last series by looking at an Old Testament passage where God describes himself and, and kind of self-proclaims his character. So we're going to turn there again this morning to hear more about how God describes himself. So if you want to open your Bibles to Exodus 34, it's page 126 in your pew Bibles. <clears throat> Exodus 34. <clears throat> so just to rehash uh, where we were last time when we came here. Um, the scene is, is that Moses is going back up on Mount Sinai. He already came down with the Ten Commandments once and got mad at people and threw them on the ground and broke them. So now he's got to go back up with a couple more tablets and God's going to uh, give them to him again. So we're going to start in verse 4. It says, So Moses chisels out two more uh, stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there before him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. So just like the slow to anger description that we looked at before, um, abounding in love becomes this phrase that other biblical authors pick up on and kind of repeat again and again throughout Scripture. So we're just going to take a look at a sample of some of these verses where we see this. So in Numbers, it says, The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, and forgiving sin and rebellion. In Nehemiah, But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. In Psalm 86.5, You, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all who call to you. Go ahead to the next slide. Psalm 86, but you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. 
Psalm 103, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Joel 2.13, rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Then finally in Jonah that we looked at last week in chapter 4, he prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is that, that it, uh, is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. So we're starting to get the message, right? <laughs> and here's why this is such an amazing description to hear at that time in human history, and really any time in human history. When you study the various gods, lowercase g, Throughout the history of civilization, you see that they were primarily kind of fickle entities uh, that were often angry and vengeful towards humanity. And so people sent, spent fretful hours trying to placate and appease these gods with elaborate rituals and sacrifices, like they were trying to crack some kind of code to figure out how to kind of have a good life here on this earth. <clears throat> but you just never knew when enough was enough to please them. So it was kind of this fear-evoking and exhausting existence for humanity that were putting their hope in those gods. So imagine the shock of God's description of himself, the God, in Exodus 34. He comes along and he says, I'm slow to anger and abounding in love. And you can, so you can see the contradiction between those other so-called deities that people were pursuing. God's self-described character is meant to put us to rest. It's meant to be a comfort and to relieve our fears. And it's this intimate and relational description that he gives us of his nature, very different from the, from the moody and distant gods of mythology. And he says his love is abounding. And in the English language, we understand that word to be like very plentiful and, and abundant. But in the Hebrew language Exodus was written in, abounding would carry the meaning of something that was heavy or weighty. God's love was heavy or weighty. Okay? And we can often tell the quality of something by how much it weighs. All right? You go to a toy store... <laughs> And you pick up something that you're like, my kid's going to break this in 20 minutes, right? Max, maybe, right? Um, or you go to a furniture store, right? And you can tell furniture, the quality of furniture a lot of times by how much it weighs, right? So when you go to move stuff at your wealthy friend's houses, you better, you know, bring, bring your good backs, right? But you got, you know, kind of the plywood type cheap furniture. And then you got the stuff that's made of solid something, right? It just weighs different. It's quality. God's love is like that. It's plentiful and limitless in terms of how we think of abounding, and it's hard to move. And it settles on us like those um, sensory blankets that people use these days. You ever had, who's had one of those on their bodies, right? If you're not used to it, it's kind of like suffocating the first time you put it on. You're like, ah, right? We had one at our house. Somebody, my daughter's got it as a gift, and and they put it in the laundry room like we're going to put it in the washer. I, I hadn't touched it yet. I went over to pick it up, and I'm like, oh, good Lord. I mean, it's just like you're dragging a wet, wet blanket around, right? And so God's love 
has this weightiness to it as it settles on us and it's solid and firm. Now, have you guys ever been around a person who is slow to anger, but not necessarily abounding in love? Maybe you had a parent like that. And to be honest with you, I've been like that most of my life. Not necessarily somebody that's very angry. I very rarely get angry, but I wouldn't necessarily consider myself abounding in love. And I've talked with you guys about my journey of just learning what it means to be abounding in love, but I just want to just get some feedback here. <laughs> For those of you maybe that, that have lived with somebody who's like that, slow to anger but not really abounding in love, what, what's it like to live with people like that? Thank God my wife is out of town today, so I'm not going to get any answers from her, and I'm going to ignore my kids' hands if they go up in the air. No. What's it like to live with somebody like that? Slow to anger, but not really abounding in love. All right. Cool. Distant. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, they're kind of distant. What else? Sorry, raise your hands. So I know you can. Yes, thank you. You never know where you stand. You never know where you stand. Good, that's great. Yeah. You're always worried that you're going to disappoint them. Okay, why? Yeah, there's a lot of room for interpretation with a person like that, right? You, they're hard to read. You don't know where they stand. So you're always kind of trying to figure out, am I in their good graces? Am I not? <clears throat> this is really painful to hear people describing me right now, okay? So if you really want to get at Bob, here's your, here's your opportunity. Yeah, anything else? I know you feel like some of you are kind of ratting out your spouses or your best friend, but, you know, it's all for the good of the church this morning, so... Anything else? Those are pretty good descriptions. Yeah. Okay. What do you mean? Like, give me some, put some flesh on that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he said that um, <clears throat> one of the reasons why he's slow to anger is that, what's that? Yeah, okay. One of the reasons why he's slow to anger is because he's kind of afraid of what his anger is going to look like. And a lot of times what comes out is criticism. Um, and so he tries to just kind of say nothing, <laughs> um, which is just hard to, to navigate too, right? So for me, it's comforting to know that I have a God who is a great balance of both of those things. He's not only slow to anger, but he's also abounding in love. And his love is unique and it's perfect. And in fact, scripture tells us in 1 John 4, 16 that God is love. God is love. So he doesn't just feel love or it's not just like another one of many emotions that God has like it is for us. It's actually a central tenet of his character. It's who he is. 
And so I want you guys to think about what are the implications of that truth for us? What are the implications of the truth that, that emotion, that, that love is not just an emotion that God feels, but it's who he is? How does that change things? And how we relate with him or how he relates to us or what are the implications of that truth for us? Yeah, Owen. Okay, it means because he, he loves us based on who he is, not depending on his mood that day, yeah? Or if we put him in a mood, right? <laughs> what else? Other implications for that? Yes, Phil. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. He doesn't have to, that's great. He doesn't have to try to love us. He doesn't have to work himself up to love us. It's just who he is. It just comes out of him naturally towards us, okay? That's good. Keep going. We're, we're hitting it this morning. This is a really important question. Yeah, Nick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good, it, it's, it kind of divorces us from, from what we do, right? Because his nature is unchanging. It doesn't depend on our behavior and how we do it, following the rules or anything like that. And I just wrote down some, some words. It's steady, it's faithful, it's reliable, it's never changing. Our actions don't determine the level of, or strength of his love. And we don't have to crack the code to appease him. We'd have to figure out how to unlock his love for us. It's just constant, constantly going, constantly available to us. So I want to ask you real quickly, you got to trust me here, okay? I want you to just close your eyes, everybody. Now imagine God thinking about you. What do you assume God feels when you come to mind? Okay, you can open your eyes. Many people I know are convinced that their sin is the first thing that catches God's attention. Anyone willing to admit that that's their impression of how God sees them? Primarily like, I'm disappointed in you or look at the things you've done. And yeah, it's pretty common. Probably a lot of you unwilling to raise your hand this morning. And that's heartbreaking, guys. <laughs> because there are tremendous implications of that flawed perspective of God. What happens if your primary view of God is that he's disappointed in you, what will your response be to that perception in your walk with him? So if your primary view of him is that he's disappointed in you, you're letting him down, you can't get it right, frustrated, what would be the implications of your walk with God then, your relationship with him, your journey with him? Can you help me out? Just a couple answers, and I'll, I'll stop asking questions after this one for a while here. 
Okay, yeah. Do what? Work harder. Okay, it'll cause you to, to, to try to figure out how to, how to work hard to get his favor. Yeah. Avoid him. Yeah, why? Excellent. That's, that's excellent. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Super discouraging for sure. Yeah. Try to be good enough to earn his love. Is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Those are the first two things that came to mind for me. I thought of, <clears throat> I thought of Adam and Eve in the garden, right? When they commit their first sin, what do they do? It says they cover themselves and they hide in shame. They're, they're so sure that God is going to reject them, that he's just going to destroy them <laughs> and start over with other people who will follow the rules better, right? That's one response I think is, is pretty common. I think the other one another person shared is that we'll desperately try to be good enough to earn his approval back. And both of those perspectives are super unhealthy and super destructive to our faith. God is love. He's abounding in it, and he just keeps coming after us, and he's relentless in his pursuit of our heart. And our role as Christ followers is to surrender to it, to surrender to his love. Stop fighting it. Stop trying to earn it. In his book, Surrender to Love, <clears throat> Author David Benner writes this. <clears throat> he says, Christians often focus on obedience more than surrender. But while the two concepts are closely related, they differ in important ways. As we shall see, surrender is the foundational foundation to Christian spirituality and is the soil out of which obedience should grow. Christ does not simply want our compliance. He wants our heart. He wants our love and he offers us his. He invites us to surrender to his love. Christianity puts surrender to love right at the core of the spiritual journey. Christ's following is saying yes to God's affirming yes to us. If it is anything less than a response to love, Christ's following is not fully Christian. That last sentence was like, hmm. <laughs> Super thought-provoking, isn't it? A little bit later on in that same chapter, he goes on to say this. There's nothing more important in life than learning to love and be loved. And I can guarantee you that the older I get, <clears throat> the more I see how true that is. The longer I walk with God, the more I see how important that is. This life's journey is all about learning to be loved so that we can love other people well. I love the surrender imagery that David provides us in Psalm 23. Could you turn your Bibles there real quick? <clears throat> Psalm 23, it's page 787. So David is writing this, and most of you guys know David was a shepherd. So he's writing this from 
uh, a lot of experience uh, in this realm. Okay, he spent a lot of time with these skittish animals called sheep. <laughs> and sheep are skittish because they don't have any way naturally to protect themselves. They don't have claws, fangs. They're not fast. They're not really big. And so they are kind of at the mercy of the protector, the provider, the shepherd. Okay, their, their well-being is wrapped up in that. So I want to read verses 1 through 3. <clears throat> David says, The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. So he says, The Lord, abounding in love, is our shepherd. And in him we have everything that we need. He makes us lie down. He leads us. He refreshes us. He guides us if we let him. Surrender involves relaxing. And, and having complete trust in the protector, the provider. We have to feel safe to relax. Can we relax in the presence of someone who we feel like is disappointed in us? I don't think we can. <laughs> because what's going on in our mind is, you know, what's the next flaw they're going to notice about me? constantly on edge. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul's famous love is passage, we read this reminder about God's love. Verse 5. It says, it does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Do we believe that about God? Do we believe that God is abounding in his ability to keep no record of wrongs? Do we believe that his mercies for us are new every morning? Do we believe that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? If we did, we'd relax and we'd surrender. But something is broken in our perception of God and ourselves for most of us. When I became a Christian way long time ago, the presentation of the gospel at that time, sermons, camp talks, books that were being written, we're primarily focused on giving somebody information about how to be saved so that you can make a decision to accept Jesus, okay? And it was usually couched in a way that also highlighted God's punitive nature, the reality of hell, with a story thrown in for good measure of, hey, if you died in a car crash tonight, do you know where you'd spend eternity? Anybody ever hear that story at an old talk sometime? Yeah. 
You still see those billboards on the side of I-70 sometimes, you know, on the highway. Do you know where you'd go if you died right now? But I've never seen anybody pulled over on the side of the road, like frantically dialing the number on the billboard, like trying to hear the person's voice lead them to Jesus in that moment. So I'm not sure that's the most effective way to handle the impending doom. And so those, those talks and those sermons and stuff weren't exactly wrong per se. Although Jesus never asked somebody to pray a prayer to accept him. Instead, Jesus invited people to drop everything. Their fishing nets, their wealth, sometimes to walk away from family and friends, drop their plans, drop their shame, drop their burdens, to follow him, to come and see, to surrender, and ultimately to learn to be loved. And I've recently been reading several books <clears throat> that have focused on the love of God. And I remember one day in particular, I was sitting at my kitchen table and um, I'm reading this book and I just kind of had to stop and, and put it down for a moment. And, and these words that I was reading were just washing over my heart like water on parched ground. <laughs> I mean, I was so thirsty for the love of God and it was just soaking it in. And I stopped for a moment because I wanted to reflect on why was this hitting me so hard? Why in this moment was like, man, this is just, oh, it's just killing me. And I realized that for much of my Christian life, people hadn't talked about God's love for me in non-performing ways. And you couple that with a personality that performs and it's a dangerous combination. When my whole way of getting affirmed was to have success and to achieve, coupled with what I thought was a God that wanted me to do the same thing, it was just a disaster, <laughs> a theological disaster. And the gospel that I heard for about the first 20 years of being a Christian was a gospel of striving for love instead of surrendering to it. A gospel that described love as something that we could lose by poor Christian performance, as opposed to a love that was based on God's character that was unchanging and had nothing to do with my ability at all. He just loves me because I'm his son. And he loves you because you're his son or you're his daughter. It's just who he is. And you don't have to do anything to earn it. And I long to known, know and experience his delight in me. And it reminds me of a, a quote <clears throat> from this book, The Cure, that many of us read a couple of years ago. I did a sermon series on it as well. And talking from God's perspective, the author writes this. So this is like God speaking to us. What if they knew the basis of our friendship isn't how little they sin, but how much they allow me to love them? 
you just leave that up there? <laughs> Again, when I read that for, for the first time, like I had to put the book down. <laughs> Does anybody else put books down? And just like, whew, you know? I literally like had to get up and walk around for a while because that was transformational for me. That was a gospel that I'd hardly heard. And that sounded like good news. A lot of the gospel that I'd heard over my life was, there's some good news sprinkled in there. <laughs> but there was a lot of do, 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 perform, perform, perform. Get it right. And this was like, oh man. What if the whole point in following Jesus was just about learning to let him love me? And I know we've talked about this, but it was two or three years ago, but you know, when you, when, you, when you talk with somebody else about, you know, how's your spiritual life going, what's the normal answer? Well, it's good or bad, and what's it based on? It's based on how well you think you're doing at reading the Bible and praying and going to church and being in community. It's this list of things about your performance, and that equates to either whether your relationship with God is good or bad at the time. What if somebody asked you that question and your answer was, man, you know, it's, it's interesting. I'm really learning to let God love me. So I think it's on a good, good course, you know. There would be some people that would be like, would have no framework for what that means. So are you reading the Bible? How many chapters did I hear some? Is there a niner in there, right? Are you journaling? What's going on? You're just sitting there, you're just letting God love you, and you think that that's enough, that that's, you're doing a good job? I don't, I don't know. Is that biblical? Right? New wineskin, right? Hmm. Unfortunately, many of us have a lot of unhealthy perspectives to unlearn. <laughs> and the journey to reclaiming a more healthy view of God and his heart towards us is a lifelong quest. Dane Ortland, um, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, which we, we gave you guys, a lot of you people picked it up last year. He had this quote. He said this, <clears throat> The Christian life from one angle is the long journey of letting our natural assumption about who God is over many decades fall away, being slowly replaced with God's own insistence on who he is. This is hard work. It takes a lot of sermons and a lot of suffering to believe that God's deepest heart is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. The fall in Genesis 3 not only sent us into condemnation and exile, the fall also entrenched in our minds dark thoughts of God, thoughts that are only dug out over multiple exposures to the gospel over many years. And man, that's resonated with me. Because for years, I really was hearing this gospel that just really wasn't true. It really wasn't full. And now that I've been teaching it, and, and as I continue to read more of it, and you look at how God describes himself, you're like, how did those people that were teaching me about this form of Christianity not seeing these things that Jesus and God were saying about themselves, about who they are, 
where, where was the disconnect there? And I think one of the problems is that it's really um, unnerving to consider the fact that God loves us not based on our performance. Because we almost want to be able to say, I'm doing a good job, so God loves me. Isn't it unnerving to be loved by your spouse or as a kid be loved by your parent when you know you've been a turd? Like it kind of is like, why are they being nice to me? Like I know that I'm a jerk. <laughs> and it's unsettling. Like you don't know what to do with it. That's how God is with us every single day. <laughs> Except he's got this long catalog of things, sins, that we are completely unaware of that he sees. And so it's not even like, you know, how Lana and I can be friends and she can love me, but based on the bad things she sees about me, God knows everything wrong about me and still loves me. Like the vastness and greatness of that love. Whew, man. And to make his message of love even more clear to us, God put on flesh and he came down to embody it. He lived love in the person of Jesus. I love the way John describes it in 1 John 3.16. He says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Jesus was abounding in love. And, and hearing about him for the first time, whatever age that was for you, I know for me, man, that's what drew me in to faith in him, was how much he loved me. But then the narrative was hijacked <laughs> by an emphasis on my performance. And the good news became not quite as good news as it started out to be, because I knew I couldn't keep it up. He was winsome. He cared for lost and hurting people deeply, right? A deeper look into Jesus' life and interactions with others is where we're going to head in the weeks to come. So I want you to join me in praying, okay? I want you to pray for yourself, for one another, that the Holy Spirit would begin to expand our ability to understand God's love. We're going to need help. It's not going to be enough just to come in here and just rely on whatever Bob says or Justin, whoever's up here speaking. Nothing speaks louder in your life than the Holy Spirit. So pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to you and begin to strip away any false understandings that we've had of God and his heart towards us. Okay? I don't know about you, but I want to encounter and experience the true God in all of his abounding love for me. Don't you? It's going to take new wineskins to do that because God's bigger than we thought he was. Man, I'm just, I'm tying all the notes together here today, man, wrapping it all up, okay? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. It's so awesome to worship and follow a God who we're never done getting to know or understanding or trying to wrap our minds around. 
It's like we walk into a field with just infinite treasures buried. And as we walk along and we, we start digging around, we just come upon one treasure after another. And we look back and the treasures are just stacked up, but there's just more and more rows to go. And I thank you that your love is like that. That your love is not based on how well we do at pursuing you. But our starting point is I am loved regardless of my performance, in spite of my performance. And I pray that we could relax enough to surrender to that, that we could trust you as our shepherd, that your heart for us is good, that if we follow you, you're gonna lead us to places of refreshing in life. You're gonna have us on the right path. You're gonna feed us. You're gonna take us to water. You're gonna guide us. God, help us to surrender to that, God. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name.